The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, let's turn back to the book of Daniel. We're back in the book of Daniel today and uh, we'll continue our study through this incredible book and Daniel's uh, vision uh, that we find here in chapter 11. Uh, While I was in Africa, I was asked uh, what Old Testament book was my favorite book out of the Old Testament and Daniel is right at the top of the pile. Uh, In the book of Daniel, we find the sovereignty and glory of God on display. Uh, We find the call for faith and for courage uh, in the midst of difficulty. Uh, We find the glorious pictures of Christ and his kingdom. In uh, chapter 2, he's the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Chapter 7, the Son of Man uh, coming to the Ancient of Days. In chapter 9, the Messiah, the Prince who will bring the Prince to come to an end. And in chapter 10, the glorious heavenly vision. And then on top of all of those reasons to love Daniel, there are these incredible prophecies that we find in chapter 11 that defy, defy human explanation. The prophecies of, of Daniel, and particularly what we find in chapter 11, are so clear and so specific that the only way that the critics can maintain their disbelief is to consider this section of Scripture a forgery that was written after the fact. That specific, that clear, and that devastating to the natural mind. There's prophecies about Medo-Persia, prophecies about Greece, uh, prophecies about the Seleucid and the uh, Ptolemaic empires, all before they took place in history, and it's mind-boggling accuracy. And uh, we find that God is the one who's declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Uh, But like we mentioned the last time we were in Daniel, it's important to keep in mind that the, the point of Daniel 11 is not simply to tell us that God knows the future. Uh, that's a, a glorious doctrine that God is omniscient, that God knows all of the future. But that's not the point of Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 was actually meant to address a specific burden that Daniel carried. If you remember the historical setting of this prophecy, uh, Daniel had been fasting for three straight weeks. He carried a heavy burden on his heart for the people of God. Back in chapter 10 and verse 2, it says, In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. And why was Daniel so distraught? Why why was Daniel fasting all of this time? He was mourning over the people of God. Look back at uh, verse 14 of, of chapter 10. It says, Now I have come to give you, this is what the angel declares to him, now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. So that's what Daniel has been concerned about. He's been concerned about his people and what will happen to these my people. And if you remember during this time, the people of Israel were freed from captivity in Babylon and they began to return to Jerusalem, but the temple was still a pile of rocks. The city was buried underneath the rubble. The the people of God were viewed as a reproach among the nations. And many of the people who returned were discouraged. They were frustrated. They were experiencing persecution. And there were many more who remained in Babylon 
who were completely uninterested in the work of God. They were making a comfortable home back in Babylon. And Daniel was so distressed over this that he refused to even feed himself. He was in pain for the people of God. And maybe you know of believers who are discouraged. Maybe you're in pain for some of the people of God even today. You know people who are discouraged about the work of the Lord. Maybe it's even you. Maybe you're the one who's discouraged about the work of the Lord. Maybe at one time you had a burning zeal for for ministry, the gospel work, but now that burning zeal is just like a puff of smoke. And you wonder, what what happened? What, What happened to those around me? What's happened to me? Why do I no longer have this desire to to serve the Lord? Why have I become so discouraged with the work of the Lord? Are you discouraged? Do you know of believers who are pursuing righteousness, striving hard after the kingdom, but they just keep getting shot down? What they seek to build is torn down. It's put to a halt. It's discouraged. It's dismantled. It's defeated. Every time they poke their heads up, it's like they get smacked back down again. Maybe you know of believers like that. Maybe that's you. Do you have a concern for those who are being persecuted for the work of Christ? One of the pastors at the, the conference that I was in, in in Africa, he asked the question, what are, we to think, what are we to think about ministry in some of these areas where the gospel is being openly rejected? You know, they're preparing for ministry and they're being told about the mission field. But he says, what are we to think about those areas that aren't interested in the gospel? You know, there's people that are hostile towards us because we share with them the gospel. And talking mostly about these Muslim-dominated areas. And there's an understanding that the gospel is to go out to to all the nations. But there were these nations around them where the gospel was being met by violence. God's work was being violently opposed. And the question was, are we still supposed to go to these areas? Where we're often frustrated, where we're discouraged by the work that's going on there? What are we supposed to do when the the doors seem to be shut for the work of the gospel? Should we keep knocking when we're not invited to come in? And then we have those who are completely uninterested in getting involved in the work of the ministry altogether. They, They call themselves the people of God, but they're totally uninterested in the work of God. Can you even call yourself a Christian when you're not interested in the work of God? 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. As believers, we have a desire to be pleasing to the Lord. What about these people that don't seem like they're interested in the work of God at all? Lord, it's discouraging for these people who call themselves Christians and they're not even willing to put their hand to the plow. And Daniel was so distraught over what he saw that he lost his appetite for weeks. And he pleaded with the Lord for an answer. Lord, what is going on? And what will become of these, your people? Have you ever felt like that? The prophecy of Daniel was meant to give an answer to these kinds of questions. And these words are meant to lift up the servant of God who has become discouraged and frustrated as the people of God seem to be trampled on in the world around us. And the vision of Daniel reminds us that while on the surface... The race seems to be given to the swift and the battle to the strong. That underneath the surface and behind the scenes, there is a God who is sovereignly orchestrating all things to fulfill his intended design. So let's take a look at our text, Daniel chapter 11, and we'll start at verse 36. Daniel chapter 11, starting at verse 36. 
It says, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we are so grateful for your word. Father, your word is is sufficient for all of our needs. For everything that we face, Father, we find a sufficient word. Everything that we need for life and godliness is found here. All the instruction, the reproof, the correction, the training for righteousness, it's all found here. So, Father, I pray that today that we would behold wonderful things from your word. And, Father, that you would open up our minds and our understanding so that we might be helped. Lord, help your people, I pray. Help us, God. And I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name, I praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Stephen Charnock was a a Puritan preacher in the 17th century. And he writes this in his work on divine providence. Listen to these words. He says, everything sits under God's providence. Even evil is decreed to bring good. While Satan and wicked persons conspire to destroy God's people, the Lord in his providence and power brings evil under the subjugation of his mercy and sovereignty and diverts their sinister plans to instead elevate and enrich his church. What human beings mean for destruction, God uses for his glory. And we have to keep this in mind as we examine this passage, because verse 36 doesn't seem too encouraging. Look at verse 36 again. Then the king will do as he pleases and will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper. I mean, what is an evil king doing prospering? How is that supposed to be any kind of encouragement for Daniel? I mean, is that supposed to make us feel better that an evil king is prospering? Daniel's coming to God for hope in the midst of discouragement, and God tells him an evil king is coming, and he will prosper. But it does bring hope if you understand that God has a plan even for evil kings. Pharaoh was an evil king in Egypt, but God said in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. God had a plan for an evil king like Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil king in Babylon. But in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. It was God who gave Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God did that because God had a plan for an evil king. Even an evil ruler like Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, who committed the first abomination of desolation in the sanctuary of God. Daniel chapter 8 verse 12 says, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. It was God who gave it over to the hands of this evil king. Evil kings will prosper, and they will continue to prosper. Sorry to inform you. They will continue to prosper. Evil kings will continue to prosper, even in our day. 
But what brings us hope is that God has a purpose even for evil kings. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. God has a purpose for everything. And in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36, it introduces us to the apex of evil rulers. We've encountered many evil rulers so far, but this is the the consummation of all evil rulers combined. This is the the combination of all the pharaohs and the the Nebuchadnezzars and Antiochuses and Herods and Neros and Hitlers all rolled up into one villainous person. And he's simply introduced to us in verse 36 as the king who will do as he pleases. This is a terrifying ruler. One who follows these other rulers, but he embodies all of these rulers. And just briefly, I want to remind you of what we've seen so far back in chapter 11. This is all just review. Back in verse 2, we covered the the rulers of Medo-Persian empires. And these are some of the rulers that preceded this ruler. The Medo-Persian empire had rulers. And the fourth king, specifically highlighted in verse 2, if you look back at verse 2, again, this is just review, to see what rulers we've covered so far in verse 2. It says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them as soon as he becomes strong through his riches. And he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of of Greece. And this was a prophecy about King Ahasuerus. And if Israel was tempted to think that the path to security and freedom lied in, you know, their riches, you know, King Ahasuerus was a clear warning sign that money is a false hope. But people rule by money. And the lesson we learn here is that the kingdom's not to the rich. The next clear division was in verses 3 to 4, the description of uh, the kingdom under the control of Greece, Uh, Look at this in verse 3. It says, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. And the the king that was identified there was Alexander the Great of Greece. And you remember that he was known for his power, for his dominance. By the age of 30, he created one of the largest empires of the ancient world. But as powerful as Alexander was, he couldn't protect his own children. Not one of his descendants would follow him on the throne. So the kingdom is not given to the powerful. Again, we have a third division of this text in verses 5 through 20. Introduced to the divided kingdom. The the Greek kingdom was split into four different parts, four different sections, divisions. And the primary divisions that are discussed in chapter 11 are the division of north and south. And the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires kind of battled it out against one another. And uh, Israel was just the collateral damage in between. And there were power struggles of all sorts that went on between the north and and the south, and uh, the way that they kind of vied for power was by deception, by scheming against one another. There were schemers, but again, the kingdom does not go to the, to the schemers. But after the schemers and the powerful and the rich, we find a, another division in verses 21 to 35, a, a particular person of wickedness. Antiochus IV, if you look at verse 21, It says, in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. This is a despicable, wicked person, Antiochus Epiphanes. And for those of you who remember, Antiochus was the the great persecutor of the people of of God. In 168 BC, he declared war on Jerusalem, declared it a Greek city. In 167 BC, he uh, had an altar uh, that was set up for for pagan sacrifices, offered a pig on the, the, uh, the sacrifice of the, the altar of God, stuffed pork down the throat of the priest. It was called the abomination of desolation. 
sacrifice to the Olympic god Zeus and the temple of God. The worship of Greek gods was introduced. The observance of Sabbath and circumcision was punishable by death. Sacrifices were to be made to pagan deities and anybody who had a copy of the Torah, had their children circumcised, was to be put to death. Even children who were circumcised were put to death and hung around the necks of their mothers. That's the kind of man Antiochus Epiphany was. He was a man of great evil, but the kingdom does not go to the wicked either. But here in verse 36, we're introduced to a a king that's going to embody all of these kings who came before him. He's going to put it all together. There's going to come a king who makes these other kings pale in comparison. The apex of all these evil rulers that we've encountered so far. The consummation of all the evil rulers combined. He's a combination of the riches of Ahasuerus, the power of Alexander the Great, the scheming of the kings of the south and the north, the wickedness of Antiochus, all in one beast of a ruler. And this is who we're introduced to in verse 36. And he's none other than the future Antichrist, the satanically empowered and possessed ruler of the world. And how do we know that this is who we're talking about in verse 36? Glad that you asked the question. Number one, in verse 35, if you look back at verse 35, it says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. The end time. This is the appointed time because it is still to come at the appointed time. This is an indication that Daniel is transitioning from near future to far future, the end of time. This is beyond the time of Antiochus. It's referring to a time to come, an appointed time, okay? So talking about the far future, number two, number two, we don't have any historical record of anything in verses 36 to 45 matching anything that we know about the life of Antiochus. This is not speaking about Antiochus. If you look at verse 37, it says, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Was that true of Antiochus? The answer is no. He tried to make the Jerusalem, you know, Jerusalem and the surrounding area into a Greek city. He tried to get them to sacrifice to the Greek gods. He sacrificed to Zeus, dedicated the, the temple of God to Jupiter. He introduced the worship of Greek gods. He was not somebody who distanced himself from the gods of his fathers. Also, you find in verse 42, verse 42, it says, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. If you remember in the the history of Antiochus Epiphanes, it was Egypt that he wanted to come and take over, but he was unable to because Rome came in and intervened. So he was never able to take over Egypt. This is talking about a different king. Number three. Antiochus came from the north. Remember there was those battles between north and south? But the king that's described here is different than the kings of the north and the south. Look at verse 40. It says, at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him. So we're talking about a king that's distinct from the kings of the north and of the south. He's simply referred to as the king, the king. He's not associated with either north or south. Number four, the events that are described here are happening at the same time. Listen to this. They're happening at the same time as the greatest distress that has ever occurred in the world. 
How do we know that? Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12. Now at that time, what time is he talking about? The same time at the, as the end. At that time, we're talking about the same time. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. It's that time that Daniel is speaking about. And Jesus describes the same time over in the book of Matthew. Flip over to Matthew real quick. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, Jesus is uh, referring to the same period of time that Daniel speaks about. And look at what Jesus calls it. Matthew 24, verse 21. Matthew 24, verse 21. It says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What we're talking about is a period of time that is the same period of time as the great tribulation. This is what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 24. Also, if, if that wasn't enough, following this time, there, was, there will be a resurrection of the dead. Back in uh, Daniel, if you flip back to Daniel in chapter 12, in verses uh, 2 to 3, what happens after this time, after this great tribulation? What's going to happen then? Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And that has not yet taken place. This is talking about after the time of the great tribulation. And one final reason, number six. The language that's used in this passage to speak about this king is identical to the language that's used about the Antichrist to come. Look at uh, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Ever, ever hear anybody else spoken of like that? Why don't you flip over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Take a look at uh, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just look at verses 3 to 4. You don't mind flipping around, do you? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 3 to 4. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, and speaking about the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And what does he do? He, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is a description of the Antichrist. Flip over to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, just one more. Revelation 13, take a look at verse 6. 
Actually, I'll start at verse 5. Revelation 13, starting at verse 5. It says, There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. This is the three and a half years. was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written, found, uh, written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. And hopefully you have an ear to hear. We're talking about the same person. Daniel 11 is speaking about the Antichrist. And we could multiply reasons, but these here uh, let us know that we're talking about the man of wickedness, the one who will outstrip every king who came before him, the man of sin, the man of perdition, the beast who comes from the abyss. And with the time I have left, I want to give you six descriptions of the end time king. Six descriptions. And yes, I will try to finish these today. Six descriptions of the end time king. And hopefully you'll see this as an encouragement in this passage, uh, even though it describes a time that uh, I hope none of us will be here for, okay? Six descriptions of the end time king and the rule of the Antichrist. Number one, it's an idolatrous reign. Idolatrous reign of the end time king. Look again at verses 36 and 37. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. Nor will he show regard for any other god. For he will magnify himself above them all. The reign of this king will be an idolatrous reign. The kind of reign that's described here is a reign of an empire. And we know that not only because this ruler is called the king, but he's also said to do as he pleases. And that's language that's used of world empires, to do as you please. They're the, the, the nations that are empires that don't answer to anybody. They don't report to anybody. They don't pay tribute to anybody. They're not ruled by anybody. And it's language that's used of world empires. It's the same language that we find used of the Medo-Persian empire back in Dan Daniel chapter 8 and verse 4, the Medo Persian Empire was described as a, a nation that did as he pleased. The king did as he pleased. Talking about a world ruler. It was also used in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 3 to speak of Alexander the Great. The mighty king who did as he pleased. Again, speaking about a world ruler. And that same language is now used of the Antichrist who will do as he pleases. He's a world ruler. His kingdom, according to Daniel 7, is going to come forth out of the, the Roman Empire, out of the beast, the Roman Empire, in Daniel chapter 7, and he will do just as he pleases. But ruling the world won't be enough for this king. You know, worldwide empire is not going to be enough for Satan. What he wants is he wants to rule heaven too. He doesn't just want to rule the earth. He wants to rule heaven. Look at it again in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God, and speak monstrous things against the God of gods. It has always been Satan's desire to take the place of God. That's what he wants. And that's how he's described back in Isaiah chapter 14. You remember the description of Satan that we find there? 
Isaiah 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That is what Satan desires. That's what Satan desired when he tempted Christ. He desired to be above God in the wilderness, remember? He says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and do what? Worship me. Treat me like God. I want to be exalted to the place of God. To get Jesus to bow down to me would be to the, the, the greatest experience of my life. I want to be in the place of God. Will you give me worship? That's what Satan wants. He wants to present himself as God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. Above every so-called God or object of worship. Don't think for a moment that Satan simply wants to entice you away from the true God. That's not, that's not all that he wants. He doesn't simply want to distract you from the worship of the true God. He's, he's not done until you're flat down on your face prostrated before him in worship. That's what Satan wants from you. That's what he wants from your life. Satan is seeking worshipers. For such people, Satan seeks to be his worshipers. And the Antichrist will use his position of power and influence to produce worshipers of Satan. That's what he desires, to exalt and magnify himself above every God. And he'll use his words to do it. In verse 36, he will speak. He will exalt him and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. You know what Satan is? He's a blasphemer. He's a blasphemer. And there's two ways that you can think about blasphemy. Uh, one way is when we elevate ourselves to a position that only God belongs in. That's blasphemy. Remember when Jesus said that he was one with the Father and the Jews picked up stones to stone him? Why did they do that? Because they said, you being a man are making yourself out to be God. You don't put yourself on the same level as God. That's, that's blasphemy. And they would have been right if Jesus wasn't God, <laughs> right? But, but that's what it is, is to elevate yourself to a position that only God belongs in. But what else is blasphemy? It's to bring God down to the position that you belong in. To elevate yourself up to the position of God or to bring God down to your position, both are blasphemy. When the Pharisees were calling the work of the Holy Spirit and the miracles of Jesus the work of Satan, what were they doing? They were blaspheming. And this is what Jesus points out. Whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're calling the work of God the work of Satan, bringing the work of God down. So to bring yourself up or to bring God down, both are considered blasphemy and Satan will be involved in both. He will elevate himself above every God and he will speak blasphemous words, monstrous things about God to bring God down. And the most surprising aspect about this is that he'll be allowed to do it. <laughs> Look at verse 36 again. It says, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. And this is why I said it's important to keep in mind that everything sits under God's providence. And that even evil is decreed to bring good. And the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And God will use even a monstrous ruler like the Antichrist to bring about his purposes. 
He's going to do this until the indignation is finished. Do you know what that is? The indignation? That's a word that's used for the wrath of God. The Antichrist coming to this earth will be used as an instrument for the wrath of God. This is how God is going to judge people through the Antichrist. The word for indignation is used consistently for the wrath of God throughout Scripture. In uh, Psalm 69 verse 24, it says, Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. Isaiah 13, 5, they're coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Zephaniah 3 and verse 8, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Indignation is a a picture in scripture of God's wrath and God's wrath poured out on the unbelieving world will be in the person of the Antichrist. Basically what the Lord is saying when the Antichrist comes is, you know, since you don't want to serve me as your God, I'll give you somebody that you will serve. You don't want to serve me as your God? Watch what you're going to serve. Look, Look at who you're going to worship. It's God giving people over to their own rebellion. It's like Romans chapter 1. It's God giving them up. You don't want me for your God? That'll be your God. I'll send you the Antichrist. He will be the one that you will worship. And God have mercy on the people who will take the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. Lord have mercy on the people. What an unbelievable exchange. He will prosper until the indignation is finished. That's what's going to happen. It's been decreed and it will be done. And the Antichrist at this time will refuse to have any rivals. At this time, the mask is pulled off. Mask is pulled off. There's no syncretism in his day. There's no pluralism. You know, there's not each man to himself. There's no blending of the religions. There's no calling him by another name. There's going to be monotheistic allegiance to the Antichrist. Worship me and me only shall you serve. Verse 37 says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. The the gods of his fathers could be referring to uh, the pagan deities of Rome, uh, but the word for, for gods is actually Elohim, Elohim, and could be referring to the one true God of Israel in verse 37. And the phrase God of his fathers is a common expression uh, that's used for the God of Israel as well. Exodus 3.15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers. It's a common expression for the true and living God. So it could be that the Antichrist, even though he comes from the West, could be from Jewish descent. And he rejects the God of Israel as well as any other God. It could be that. But he is going to replace all religion and tolerate none besides himself. And right in the middle of this rejection of all forms of religion, there's the statement that he will show no regard for the desire of women or the one beloved by women in the ESV. And without getting into all the the ways that this could be understood, the most basic way to understand this is that what women want will mean nothing to the Antichrist. He will have no regard 
interpreters wrestle with, you know, is this women's desire for men or men's desire for women or women's desire for false gods or women's desire for the true God, for the Messiah? I think the simplest way to understand that, because it doesn't really indicate like what way you should take it, is just that he'll have no regard for the desire of women. He's completely unnatural in his affections. What women want, he doesn't care. He's unnatural. This is an unnatural type of ruler. Unnatural affections, and he stomps out all religious affections. Natural desires mean nothing to him. Reminds us again of Romans chapter 1 where there's not even a love for family. There's no natural affection. Like this is this antichrist. He cares nothing. He, He has no regard for anybody. No regard for women. I don't care if you cry, you whine, you moan. I don't care. He has no regard for anybody. Only what he desires. He's going to magnify himself above everything. Everything is centered on me. He is the one ring to rule them all. What anyone desires doesn't matter to him. He is the cruel God that men will worship. And can I make an offer to you now? (laughs) Can I make an offer to you now? Why don't you come to the true and living God? Why don't you come to the true and living God who offers eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ? Why would you want to make a substitute like this? We, We have a God who does care. Matthew chapter 11, 28, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does that say? That that says Jesus cares. I care. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why Why don't you come to somebody who cares for you? God cares for you. Christ cares for you. Instead of bowing to a cruel dictator, you can come to the God who loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why don't you come to one who offers you life instead of eternal damnation? Come to Christ. Come to the Lord. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his his love in this. How, How does he demonstrate his love toward us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ sacrificed himself for us. He's not sacrificing you for himself. You don't have to come to a God who merely takes like the Antichrist. You can come to a God who gives, a God who sacrifices, a God who loves, a God who gives joy and life and peace. Turn to Jesus Christ and find life. This is one who cares. Not like this idolatrous king, the idolatrous reign of this king. Number two, and we'll move quicker. (laughs) Number two, it's a powerful reign of the end time king. A powerful reign. Look at verse 38. It says, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. The Antichrist will rule by the power of his might. And that's what's meant by the God of fortresses. The text already said that uh, he'll show no regard for gods, the gods of his fathers, no gods at all. So how does it now turn around and say that he will honor the God of fortresses? What does that mean? It means that fortresses are his gods. To put it simply, he will be totally devoted to warfare. That's who this Antichrist is. This will be his domestic policy, his foreign policy, his economic policy. It's going to be war. You know, we serve the Prince of Peace. This is going to be the Prince of War. The military machine will be his supreme devotion. And he will sacrifice everything else to support that. 
This is going to be terrifying. You know, I mean, what would it be like if Hitler had all the power of modern warfare at his disposal? All the combat weapons, explosive weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, electrical weapons, nuclear weapons, cyber weapons. What if a military genius like Alexander had all of this to rule the world? I mean, 10 years would have been way too long for him to conquer everything, right? And this will be the kind of might that the Antichrist will have at his disposal, at his fingertips, in addition to demonic power, to demonic weapons. Revelation chapter 13. Flip over to Revelation real quick. Revelation 13. Just make sure you're awake out there. Revelation 13. Take a look at uh, verse 2. Revelation 13. Look at verse 2. It says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Again, this is like this kind of combination of all the kings who came before. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Look at verse, drop down to verse 4. It says, They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. The dragon, Satan, gives the beast his authority. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? He's got everything at his disposal. All the arsenal of the world plus all the arsenal of hell at his disposal. He's given authority to rule. And through military strength, he's able to take out the strongest fortresses in the world. Again, in verse 39, it says he will take action back in Daniel 11. He will take action against the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Speaking about his war machine. Take a wild guess. Who's the strongest military fortress in the world today? The United States is. And the United States will be no match. Will be no match for the Antichrist in that day. I mean, we would qualify to be the strongest fortress today. But the strongest fortress will be no match for the Antichrist in that day. And maybe that's why America doesn't show up in Bible prophecy. (laughs) Who knows? The center of power will shift. It has to shift. Because the Bible says it's going to shift. The center of power is not going to be the U.S. of A. It's not going to be that. It's going to shift. There's going to be an Antichrist who will come from a revived Roman Empire who will take over the world and be the center of power. We don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. But we do know that it is going to happen. And he's going to knock out the strongest fortresses in the world. And there's nothing that we can do to stop that. Imagine being at the mercy of the Antichrist, who has all the weapons of warfare. I mean, how can anybody escape from this? This is is terrifying to think about. Terrifying. I mean, how, how are you going to escape from this? We can't hardly escape from our smartphones. And you're going to escape from this? He will shake the kingdoms, make the earth tremble, Make the world the wilderness, overthrow its cities, not allow the prisoners to go free. But not only will he rule by might, he'll also rule by intrigue. Intrigue. He can be terrifying and treacherous when he needs to be. He can be persuasive and charming when he needs to be. Look at verse 39 again, back in Daniel 11. End of verse 39. It says, He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over many and will partial out land for a price. What does that mean? He's going to gain partners through his power, 
through offering positions, through offering possessions. And I call this a deceitful reign because he's not really concerned about anybody else besides himself. This is a deceitful reign. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. If you acknowledge me, I'll, I'll give you riches. Hey, all, all you got to do is bow down. I'll give you that. You want that land over there? I can give that to you. And, you know, it's, it's, but it comes at a price. You must acknowledge me. He gives in order to get. There are always strings with Satan's gifts. He always has strings attached to his gifts. He is a deceiver. John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. Don't think for a minute that Satan means you any good. There's nothing that he's offering you without a string attached. He's got his claws sunk deep. He doesn't offer anything without an attachment. He's not there to protect you. He's not there to provide for you. He's not there to reward you. And like Antiochus in Daniel 11, by smooth words, he will turn godlessness Turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Smooth words. You know, if, if you're willing to take the mark and give your allegiance to, to me, I'll, I'll honor you. I'll, I'll give you possessions. I'll give you position. I'll let you rule. I'll par parcel out my land, but it comes at a price. It all comes at a price. And what will it profit you to gain the whole world and do what? Lose your soul. Lose your soul. And ultimately, the Antichrist is after souls. That's what he wants. Satan told Jesus, all these things I will give you if you bow down and worship me. He was after souls. That's what he wants. And how many are giving their soul to Satan today? For some kind of exchange. They're giving away their souls for pleasure, for sex, for drugs, for alcohol, for money for positions, for power, for prestige. People are giving their souls away. That's what they're doing. And that's how the Antichrist works. He, he works through, through these trinkets of life. That's how Satan works. Flip over to, to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. And this, this is an interesting connection. I'm not sure if we've, you've made this connection before, but this is how Satan works. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse, verse 15. Listen, listen to what the, the scripture says here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Listen to what comes next. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. How does the Antichrist sink his claws into people? It's through what he offers. Hey, you can have this position. You can have this pleasure, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and he's digging his claws into you the whole time. That is the work of the Antichrist. And it's happening today. It's happening today. The same thing that the Antichrist will do in that day is the same thing that Antichrists, plural, are doing today. They're offering you all the trinkets of the world. 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of, of life. And the capital A, Antichrist, will offer the same thing. Don't, don't think for a moment that this, this world is just neutral. This world is not neutral. This world is at war with the believer. At war. Offering all these trinkets to lure people away to bring them under the domination of Satan. Number four, it's also a divided reign. It's a deceitful reign. It's also a divided reign. Back in Daniel 11, look at verse 40. It says, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. And I find this fascinating. We've already mentioned that the Antichrist will have a worldwide empire. Remember that? He does as he pleases, a worldwide empire. But that does not mean that he has a united empire. He has a worldwide empire, but it doesn't mean that he has a united empire. It's a divided reign. As idolatrous and powerful and deceitful and prosperous as his reign is, it will still be a divided kingdom. Not even Satan will be able to keep the world under control. He, he will be a failed leader. He cannot order the world by his wickedness. He doesn't know how to rule the world. <laughs> he doesn't know how to do it. You know, when, when he's actually given the reins to do it, he doesn't know how to keep it under control. I love what uh, Sinclair Ferguson wrote. Listen to this. He says, the kingdoms of the world are unstable because their gods are also unstable. Everything to which this world's kingdoms are devoted is ultimately ephemeral, uh, temporary, short-lived. That principle applies whether we're devoted to idols we call gods or simply idols of ambition, power, fame, and possessions. The kingdom that has no ultimate foundation is bound to crumble. Since it is populated by sinners devoted to their own ways, it contains, listen to this, it contains the seed of its own destruction. A kingdom that is not built on truth, not built on Christ, not built on righteousness, will eventually crumble. Because it can't bear up the weight. It's short-lived. And then he says, evil is always unstable. Because it's rooted in our following our own wills instead of God's will. God's will alone is stable and enduring. It alone will ultimately come to pass. You build your life on anything else. You build your kingdom on anything else besides God and his word. It will pass away. The world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God does what? Lives forever. If your kingdom is built on your own will, it will not last. And it's a kingdom that's doomed to fail. And that's what we find here in this text. You know, back again, it says uh, the, the king of the south will collide with him. The king of the north will storm against him. You know, so here it is. It's like he can't even keep it under control. These, these different areas are coming against him. And it could literally be with chariots, horsemen, and whatever else they can get their hands on. You know, because maybe he has control of everything else. It's like, hey, well, he doesn't have control of these horses. We'll get him with that. In Daniel eleven forty one, it says he will also enter the beautiful land. And what's that? That's Israel. He's going to set up shop in Israel. You know, these kingdoms from the north and the south will come against him, and he'll set up his shop in Israel to attack them. Many countries will fall, it says, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Edom, Moab, and Ammon were all known as enemies of Israel. 
those that were formerly underneath, you know, Satan's power and control, but now he can't even occupy them. It's like things are starting to, to fall out. You know, he's not able to, to grab his hands around everything anymore. You know, these nations that used to be under his control are now like slipping through his fingers. And now these nations from the north and the south are coming against him. This is, this is Satan getting out of control. And during this time, he won't be able to get his arms around it. It's an indication that his system is ultimately going to fall apart. But he's still able to do what no other nation was able to do. Now he's able to move down into Egypt, gain control. He's still the world's greatest superpower. Look at verse 42. It's a prosperous reign, verses 42 and 43. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. The Antichrist will turn his attention to the south in order to put down a rebellion there. You know, the rebellions are starting to rise up, revolution. He now has to put down a rebellion down in Egypt, so he goes down there to put that under his control. He'll plunder whatever resources they have to continue to feed his war machine. The Libyans, Ethiopians abandon whatever allegiance they had with Egypt to, to join on his side, maybe attracted by the wealth, by the power, we don't know, but it's a prosperous reign, but it's also a limited reign. And this is the last point. You didn't think I'd get there, but I did. <laughs> it's also a limited reign. Look at verse 44, verse 44. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. Like I said, it's out of control. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. And what's that again? We're talking about Jerusalem. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. His kingdom will not last. As powerful as the Antichrist will be, he won't be able to hold it together. His kingdom will eventually come to ruin. And while Antichrist is focusing on the south, there's another rebellion going on in the north and the east that disturbs him, so he's disturbed Revelation 9, 16 and Revelation 16, 12 speak about kings from the east with an army of 200 million. And it could be the same army here that comes against the Antichrist. And it's going to be a world out of control. And we haven't even talked about all the signs from the sky and plagues on mankind that are happening during this time. And might be why the Antichrist can't hold everything under his control because now, you know, people are without food and, you know, things are happening in the sky and, you know, they're turning now against him. It's all out of control. It's going to be a worldwide disaster. It's going to be a mess. You know, if, if you want to be here during that time, I've got some questions for you. You know, we'll talk about that later. This is going to be a worldwide disaster with the Antichrist at the helm. And that's the world that people inherit who reject Jesus Christ. You don't want Christ to rule. This is the alternative. You don't want Jesus to be your master. You don't want to bow the knee to him. You'll bow the knee to the Antichrist. Like I said, I'm not planning to be here for any of this. <laughs> but this is worldwide disaster. And not even Satan can get his own troops in line. He can't even get his own rebellion in line with him. And in great wrath, he goes back up to the north from Egypt to meet this army that's approaching him. And he'll pitch his tents between the seas, speaking about the Mediterranean, the Dead Sea, and the beautiful holy mountain, speaking about Jerusalem. And this is where it all comes to a climax. It all comes to an end in the Holy Land. And Israel is going to be the stage for a worldwide battle. 
all the nations, the Bible says, are going to come against Israel. Sounds familiar. Remember we, we talked about in Daniel chapter 11, like these kings from the north and the south are kind of fighting, warring against each other. And who's there in the middle? Israel. Getting trampled on. This like land bridge in between, you know, these major superpowers. Israel's right in between and it's going to happen again. We've seen this story before. It's like the same movie. You know, it's coming back all, all over again. Sounds familiar. And just like the period of time during the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, we're going to have another period of time where Israel's going to be caught in the mix, right in between collateral damage as the superpowers are battling it out. They will come against Israel. This is the place where we want to set up our stage for war. And they'll take advantage of Israel. Actually, flip over to the book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah. I'll give you a little time to find it, but not too much. <laughs> flip to the, to the end of the Old Testament and start working your way back, right? Malachi, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. This is so remarkable. I mean, the scriptures are just fantastic. Can we, can we just agree on that? Zechariah chapter 14. It actually speaks about this period of time, okay? Zechariah 14, look at verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Like I said, this is a movie, we've, we've seen this movie before. We've already watched the reruns for this one. But the end of this story will not be the same as the end of the other stories we've seen. What's going to happen? And I wish I had more time to develop this. But, but you'll be back next week, right? So we can, we can finish this up, right? We don't have to rush this. You'll be back, but I want to give you the spoiler warning. What, what happens? These nations gather against Jerusalem for battle. The Antichrist, the North, the South, everybody's you know, coming to war. They're ravishing the women, plundering the houses, capturing the city. And what happens in the midst of all this turmoil that's happening? The Antichrist is, is centering his attention on Jerusalem. The, the world nations are centering their attention on Jerusalem. This is the place where we're going to set up for battle. Let's get you out of the way. We're setting up for war here. And what happens? Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. As when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountain for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Who's that? That's us, church. That's us. The saints are coming back. The holy ones with him. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle for it will appear. It will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time, there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern sea and the other half toward the Western sea. It will be in the summer as well as in the winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Amen. Somebody say it. Somebody say it, right? Amen. This is absolutely incredible. Incredible. Just when all hope seems to be lost, Israel's about to take its final breath, the Lord shows up. 
the Lord shows up and he takes the last breath from the enemy. That's what's going to happen. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Fantastic. Fantastic. Flip over to Zechariah 12. Look at verse 8. Zechariah 12. Look at verse 8. It says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them, and that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn you know what's going to happen? And this is what's so exciting about this. What's going to happen is that as all these powers are coming against Jerusalem, moving Israel out the way, finally Israel's going to look up and say, Lord, we need help. We need deliverance. Lord, help us. We have no place else to turn. And they're finally going to look up. And who are they going to see? It's going to be the Lord. They're finally going to turn to the one whom they have pierced. They're finally going to turn to Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord is doing in all of this. Why does he allow this wicked king to come into place? It's, it's so that he can bring his people back to himself. God had a purpose for raising up this evil king. To bring his people to their knees. To bring his people to look up to him. To finally bring his people salvation. This is going to be a victorious day and the Lord does it all. And he gets the credit for it all. He gets the credit for everything. Let me leave you with just a few, few lessons to take away, okay? Just a few lessons. Number one, remember the statement we made earlier? Everything sits under God's providence. Even evil is decreed to bring good. While Satan and wicked persons conspire to destroy God's people, the Lord in his providence and power elevates and enriches them. God had a plan for even raising up this evil king. The entire world coming against Israel will finally cause Israel to cry out. God had a plan. And, and what human beings mean for destruction, God uses for glory and salvation. All Israel will one day be saved. Number two, if you find yourself discouraged in the work of the Lord, keep in mind that you're working for a kingdom that is yet to come. You're working for a kingdom that is yet to come. And what we build on this earth can often be frustrated it's torn down, washed away. Ministries can be hijacked. Good people can be persecuted and discouraged. But that doesn't mean that the work was in vain. If you're building on a rock and you're storing your treasures in heaven, whatever you've done for Christ is going to last, right? <laughs> if, if it was only for this life only, I mean, you know, go ahead and weep if it was only for this life. But if you're building in the kingdom to come, you have reason to rejoice. Because what you store there can never be taken away from you. So, so we work for a kingdom that is to come. Daniel was not to be discouraged by what he saw with his eyes. He was supposed to be encouraged by what he saw with his faith. That there's something else that is to come. And the last thing I'll leave you with is that the kingdom that has no ultimate foundation on Christ and his word is bound to crumble. 
It's bound to crumble. There's only one kingdom that's going to last, and it's God's kingdom. The only kingdom that will not crumble, it's the kingdom of Christ. My question for you is, are you a part of that kingdom? Are you seeking first his kingdom, his glory, his righteousness? And how do you enter that kingdom? How do you enter the the kingdom of, of this king who is to come that will slay the enemy with the breath of his mouth? How do you enter into that kingdom? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you turn to Jesus Christ, you can be part of that eternal kingdom that will never be taken away. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, so much for this word. This word is so exciting. It's so rich. It's so powerful. And God, I don't know why people would waste their time with anything else other than your word. As the people of God gathered together, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by who you've des- described yourself to be. All that you've put on display here for us. These things belong to us. The things revealed belong to us. Father, we're so grateful for your word. And Father, we're thankful that, that the, the king who is to come, this end time king, this antichrist, that his reign will be short. And that the reign of our king, our king Jesus, that his reign will be long. His reign will be eternal. And our Father, we thank you that we are a part of his kingdom today. And we pray for anybody who is here who has not yet bow the knee to this king, uh, that today would be the day. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.